welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. So what, what's going to make this the best summer ever? What will make this summer the best summer ever? Our relationships are paramount in God's eyes. Nothing could be more important to God than our relationships. And when we don't do our relationships well, we feel that in every area of our lives. And we know this, we know that we're going to feel it, and we know that we don't do relationships well. And yet somehow, no matter how hard we try, how intentional we are, we still manage not to do relationships that well, if we were honest with one another. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his power and his presence at the very center of our relationships, guiding our relationships, tending our relationships with one another. So the question is, what would it look like to cultivate healthy relationships this summer? What would it look like to cultivate healthy relationships with our spouse, with our kids, with our boss, our coworkers, our extended family? What would it look like to cultivate healthy relationships? Because summer is a really relational time. It's different that way, isn't it? It's not like a gathering um, time where we're um, getting ready to plant in winter. We're getting ready to plant, getting ready for spring. Summer's a restful time, hopefully. And summer is a relational time. It's a time for us to go on vacation or gather around barbecues or hang out with extended family. But yet, the summer seems to fly by, doesn't it? Clevelanders, September, winter will be here soon. September is right around the corner. Do you rebuke me in Jesus' name? Amen. (laughs) I knew you would get a kick out of that one. So how can we bring life to the relationships that we find ourselves in? How can we introduce a sense of thriving into dysfunctional family systems? How can we move beyond cultural niceties and demonstrate the love of Jesus to others? Because the truth is is that we're closer to the kingdom, we're nearer to the kingdom when we value relationships above anything else, including ourselves, our need to be right, our need to be affirmed, our need to be understood, our need to be satisfied. We're closer to Jesus when we honor one another and show love in practical ways to the people Jesus loves and is placed in our lives. And Jesus loves everyone, and that's the problem we have. <laughs> Jesus loves everyone. Jesus loves people whose opinions, whose preferences, whose dress, whose ethnicity, whose social standing differs from our own. And those people who we coin difficult people. So how can we love people well this summer, even those we don't particularly care for or naturally gravitate toward? That's the challenge on us this morning that I want all of us to hear. 
How can we thrive in our relationships this summer and see that in our relationships we'll have the best summer ever? So first we need to realize where love comes from. Where love comes from. Because if we're to do our relationships well, if we're to thrive in our relationships, then we need to know where love comes from. Because we can't thrive in our relationships if we don't love people. Where does love come from? First John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And before you throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, well, obviously love comes from God. I mean, how much base, more of a base level can you get? Love comes from God, right? But have you ever just stopped a moment and pressed pause and thought about where love comes from? Where does love come from? Love comes from God. And what John is saying here is that the very essence of who God is. Like if you wanted to get down to brass tacks and know who God is, at his very core, John is saying that God is love. God is love. Not, just, not simply what he's like or anything else, but who he is. Everything he's composed of. His substance is love. Love starts with him. God is love. And there's a way that we can measure how our relationships are going. It's by how we love people. It's how we love people. In fact, that's the mark, the only identifiable mark in what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's the mark of an authentic follower of Jesus. It's not whether or not you care about social justice issues on Facebook. It's not um, whether you type it on Facebook to somebody else. I love you. Could type it a million times. It's not by how often you come to church or not come. It's not even by how good you are or how many good things that you do. The mark of a, an authentic follower of Jesus is love. That's it. It's like the, the hymn says, they'll know we're Christians by our love. By our love. They'll know we're Christians by our love. It doesn't say they'll know they're Christians by their Facebook status. They'll know they're Christians by how much they give to the poor. They'll know we're Christians. Cleveland will know that we follow Jesus by the way that we love others. That's, that's why I say that, that you're never closer to the kingdom. Your, your closeness to Jesus, your, clo- your intimacy with Jesus, your closeness to the kingdom is directly proportionate to how well you love others. Why? Because Jesus loves people. Everybody. Everybody. 
So once we know where love originates from, it's powerful because then we're able to encourage others and move away from being hall monitors and sheriffs. Then we're able to move away from being hall monitors and sheriffs. Let me explain. <laughs> once, once we know that love comes from God and is actually who he is, we begin to experience that love in our lives, that thought spoken over our life, that the Father loves me, God loves me, I'm loved by the, the originator of love, the one who thought up the concept of love, loves me, and once we begin to receive that over ourselves, we can stop telling people what they want. And we can stop trying to control people and what they do. We can stop doing relationships the way that we always did them before we knew that God loves us. How can we do that? We can stop trying to control people because God doesn't do that with people. Aren't you glad that God doesn't control or manipulate you? God never leads out of manipulation. Ever. And it's sad in the church a lot of times because a lot of church leaders who claim to be going in the name of God lead by manipulation. And it's wrong. And I'm, you know, and I'm standing here before you today telling you I'm sorry if that's happened to you in the past because that's not who God is. God is love and never leads out of manipulation. Always ushers us into greater freedom. That was a big deal what just happened right now. <laughs> and that's part of the reason why we're growing here. Is because people, we're, we're beginning to see that this place is a place that will not be led from leaders who lead out of a place of fear or manipulation. So it creates a culture of freedom. And some folks aren't used to that yet. Give it a little time. People won't be able to stay away from it. Because when we get a taste of real freedom and true life, when we understand that thought over our lives that God is love and God loves us, it's contagious. It spreads. Yeah, and so... We don't have to control people anymore. Isn't that great news? You don't have to fix people. Isn't that really great news this morning? I don't have to fix you. You don't have to fix me. Once we know we're loved by a God who is loved, we can call out in others who they're becoming, not what they should do. There's something so powerful in calling out and speaking out and vocalizing the good in others that God sees in them already. Once we know we're loved, other people's conduct and behavior are seen in proper perspective. That that's the Holy Spirit's territory, not mine. I don't have to judge. I don't have to nitpick. I don't have to fault find. I don't have to criticize. I don't have to do that. Because the Holy Spirit's not doing that either. You know the only person who's doing that? The enemy. A lot of times we, we misnomer growth by calling it criticism. 
Or wait, backwards. Yeah. So, and the Holy Spirit's job is to change us and to shape us. And a lot of times we try to step into that role for other people. So you might want to try, you might want to change the way that you're doing A, B, and C. And we disguise it sometimes as like being a good follower of Jesus. We're like, I'm praying for you to stop smoking or stop doing whatever it is that you're doing. That you're hiding, that God sees anyway. That you only think that you're hiding from God. And he's not surprised by whatever sin that you're trying to change in your spouse or your coworkers' lives or whoever is in your lives. God already sees them. God loves them. That's his territory to change them, not yours. But it is your job to speak life over that person and to usher in a sense of who they're becoming. How powerful that is. How life-changing that is. Have you ever experienced it? Where you've just blew it? Maybe you've just, maybe it's just me. Maybe no one's blew it here, okay. Where you've just messed up and you know you're clearly in the wrong, you're desert, well, another, it, it couldn't, it, it doesn't even necessarily have to be in the context of like doing right or wrong things, but you've just made a mess of a relationship and that other person in the relationship or even somebody else who's outside of it comes in and speaks over you who you really are and how powerful that is. Imagine if we were, Vineyard Cleveland, the type of people who went around calling out who people are becoming instead of what they're not. That would change the city. If there were 12 if there were 12 of us going around doing that, that's a challenge to myself too. If there were five, <laughs> because that's the secret. No one's doing it. Everyone is criticizing. Everyone is judging each other. Look at the political discourse right now. It's craziness. It's loud. It's megaphone. It's judging nitpicking, criticizing. Imagine if we, Vineyard Cleveland, were just the calm, non-anxious presence of Jesus calling out over people's lives who they're becoming and not what they're not. Change the, it, would, it would change the city. People would be like, people would look at you like you're strange. They'd be like, wait a second. Why are you judging because they're only because people are only used to receiving that, which leads us to so so where where can they go? Where can they go to hear the voice of God over their lives? People need a place of refuge. People need a shelter, and the way that we provide that for people is by speaking out over their lives who they're becoming, even when we don't believe it about them. Even when we think, man, they're never going to change. That person's always going to be addicted to A, B, or C. Man, they're never going to change. They're always going to be mean to me, and I don't know why. Why is that person so passive-aggressive? They're always like that. Just choose one or the other, passive or aggressive. (laughs) 
So I'm not, I'm not saying like we need to like, okay, I'm thinking judgmental thoughts again. I got to stop doing that and start thinking good thoughts again. I mean, I guess there's some of that to it, right? But it's more like, okay, in spite of the way that I feel about that person, I'll still choose to speak the truth over them. I'll still choose to speak out over their lives who God sees them becoming, not in what I think about their personal choices. That's powerful. And then the heart change will come inside of you. Watch. Then the heart change will come inside of you. Love's place. Where does love, we know where it comes from now. So where does it belong? Where does it fit? Where does love fit into our relationships? There's this interesting little discourse in Mark in chapter 3. It's on the screens or if you guys wanted to read in your Bibles or on your smart device. Um, There's this interesting exchange between Jesus and some others there which would have been, as with a lot of things Jesus said, super shocking to people who would have heard it in this context. And he's talking about family. And he's redefining what family means. To us, it's not going to sound as shocking like, what are you saying? Because for some of us, some of our friends are, uh, are mo- a lot of us, most of our friends are like closer than our blood relatives. And so for us, it's, we hear it in a different way. But if we could just put ourselves in the place of a first century Jew who would be hearing Jesus' definition of family, listen to this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is shocking. This is a total redefinition of family. Jesus is saying, the the folks who do God's will, they're my brother, my sister, my mother. So Jesus set up the church to be a few things. The church, his church. But the main thing that he set up church to be is family. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The main thing that Jesus set the church up to be is family. The New Testament church, that's us, is called a lot of things in scripture called the body of Christ. We're called the new Israel. We're called the temple of the living God. But the one image that is most frequently used in the New Testament to define what the church is, is family. It's mentioned, to, it's given the name, the church is given the name family 232 times in the New Testament alone. 
It's really important that we get this concept of how Jesus is redefining who the family is. So what does that mean? What does that mean that the church is a family? You know, family often is distorted a lot of times, especially in um, our culture. But family is to be a shelter from the storm, from all the storms that break on our lives. Where do you run when you're hit by the storms of life? When the storm of unemployment comes, when the storm of breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend comes, when the storm of trouble with extended family comes, we run to the refuge and shelter of the church because church is a family. Church is not a place that we go. Church is what we are. It's not a building. So, it's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and not be deeply connected to a church. If Jesus' definition of If you accept Jesus' redefinition of family, it's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and not be deeply connected to a church. That's why life track and small groups are so important at Vineyard Cleveland because we're longing, desiring for family, for this expression Church is not a service you go to. Church is a family you experience. Why? We don't want to be a church that happens to have some small groups. A church with small groups. We want to be a church of small groups. We don't want more small groups so we have more meetings. Could there be anything worse than more meetings? I have like 35 a week. It's the worst. Why would we want to have more meetings? I'm not saying that the people are the worst that I meet with. So if I meet with you, you're not the worst. You're the best. (laughs) You know what I'm saying. More meetings suck. So why would we want more small groups just to multiply more meetings? It doesn't make any sense. No, we understand that small groups... When you're involved in a small group of six to eight people who you can just drop the mask and be yourself with, then the church is functioning as it's designed to function, as Jesus wants it, desires it to function as a family. Where you can just be real with people. You don't have to, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Believing the Lord, brother. Amen. You don't have to put on Sunday face. You can just be you. Because that's what people are longing for. And that's what Sarah and I sense from the Lord. He wants our church to become. A refuge from the storm for people to come and find family. To come and find home. 
There are people who are longing for this sense of family. Longing. That's where love belongs. That's where love fits in to our relationships. That's why we do them. Small groups here. Because by definition, an authentic follower of Jesus does life together with others. You cannot grow. We want to grow. Right? Everybody wants to grow. We cannot grow in following Jesus if we're not deeply connected to the church family. And we're really great at talking about what we believe. Isn't it super easy for me to just, hey, it's so, that's what we need to do. That's what we should do. Super easy to talk about what we believe. We have trouble living out what we believe. We have trouble living out what we believe. Because this is where relationships get tough. It's not easy when you've messed up. It's not easy when you've hurt somebody else or when somebody else has hurt you. It's difficult when you don't really feel like going to a small group. When you've just had a fight with your wife and you don't want to be in front of other people, let alone her. That's not easy. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Following Jesus in community is worth it. It's worth it. When we commit to a small group of people to love others, to to receive love, to live transparent lives, we find that the Holy Spirit shows up amongst us and begins to heal our relationships and do amazing things in our midst. Paul puts it this way. In Romans, he says, we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we mourn with those who are mourning. That's the uniqueness of a community of Christ followers. Love has its place and it's in community. Living our lives for Jesus together. It's how we learn not to quit not to give up. It's how we learn how to tell the truth and, not, and stop lying to each other. Just stop. I could tell you all day from pulpit, stop lying to each other. Don't cheat on your taxes. But does it really make a lick of difference if you're not in a closely um, knit group of believers who have your best interests in mind and who will sit down with you and pray over you and, be, and, and, and guide you? in a gentle way, and say, you know, it might be the best thing to tell the truth. This is where we learn. This is where we learn how to do life. Because there are people out there, of course, no one here. There are people out there who don't know how. They don't know, people don't know how to tell the truth. People don't know how to not give up. They need a place. People need a place where courage and perseverance are modeled. They need to see. They're looking everywhere. Where, everywhere I look, everybody's giving up. I'm giving up. I've given up in my life like a million times. Nowhere can people find other than the church when it's functioning as Jesus 
desired it as family. Can people find models of perseverance and courage and self-sacrifice and humility and mercy and goodness and truth-telling? Nowhere else. I defy you to find another organization where that happens, especially in today's political climate. You won't find it. We're to be a safe place. We're to be a refuge. And church happens. Love happens. Love fits, belongs in community. We do life together. Okay. Close up here. And I may do one of those things where I say, let's close up, and then I speak for another 20 minutes. Don't you hate that when pastors do that? Let's land the plane half an hour later. You're like, I thought this was over. He said this was over like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> you guys have so much grace for me. I love it. Um, so what does this look like in our relationships? Okay, so Jesus' model of love is that he laid down his life for us. We know where love comes from. We know where love fits, where it belongs in our relationships. Jesus' model of love is self-sacrifice. He laid down his life for us. We look at his life and apply what we see in him. The reason always is because Jesus did life this way. If we're looking for reasons why we're to do these things or be this way, the answer is always because Jesus lived his life this way. So, We're to be peacemakers at our workplace. Why are we to be peacemakers at our workplace? Because Jesus was a peacemaker. Even when we feel like bopping our coworker on their nose, we're to be peacemakers because Jesus was a peacemaker. We're to be generous. Why? Because Jesus is generous. We're to be merciful because Jesus is merciful. We're to tell the truth because Jesus is the truth. So what's that look like? John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Do any of you, probably not anybody here, do any of you know anybody who's super difficult to love? No. Everyone in your life is easy to love. I want your life. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's none of you here. You're easy to love. But you would say that about me, Eben? I'm, I'm someone else's difficult person to love? How could I, unique flower that I am, be difficult for anyone else to love? I mean, look at me. (laughs) Easy to love. You are someone else's difficult person to love. But, you know, honestly, some folks find you extremely difficult to love. They just do. And we say this about other people, but yet the same thing is true about us. We have people in our lives who are difficult to love. 
And this is the powerful thing in cultivating healthy relationships, is that Jesus loves even us. Even me, Jesus loves. The truth is you and I didn't deserve to be the object of God's affection, of his love. The origin of love, God himself chose to love and to commit himself to us and to our good. Doesn't the scripture say yet, even yet, while you were still sinners, modern day translation, even though you were super difficult to love, Christ Jesus died on the cross for you. Why? To show us what true love looks like? Yeah, maybe. But it's because that's who he is. He is love. And we're difficult to love. If we can just move past it, if we can just like get that and move past it and accept that about ourselves, we're really, I'm really difficult to love. And I'm not talking about self-deprecation all the time, poo-pooing on ourselves. You know, for, for other people, I'm really, I'm a, I'm a joy to be around. <laughs> I mean, Sarah, I'm easy to love. <laughs> Sarah finds me very easy to love. Um, so, <laughs> so if we would move past it and move past and accept the fact that we're difficult people to love because we're people. But we like to be right. And we like when people see it our way in an argument. We would rather be right than value that relationship above our own entitlement. And that's the truth. That's why Paul has to tell the church at Corinth to stop suing each other. Have you thought about that? Stop suing each other. (laughs) He says, (laughs) you understand? He says, stop valuing being right above your relationships. He's, he's, he has to tell the church, a whole group of people, to stop suing one another. Because what he's saying is, really, in our day and age, what he's saying is, it's, it's better to be, why not be wronged? What do you have to lose? You're difficult to love. <laughs> Just be wronged. Isn't it better to be wronged and have healthy relationships than to always be right and never get love? Hot dog. That'll preach. What would you rather have? Would you rather be wronged with healthy relationships or always be right and no shred of love to live a cold existence, frigid, never letting anybody in, devoid of love. You're already in the casket if you always have to be right. Why not be wronged once in a while and value relationship above being right? Hey, you're right, man. You're right. Can we, just, we always say, I know. Somebody says, somebody says, you know, you're like, blah, blah, blah. we're like, I know, I know. 
why don't we say, you're right. It's even in the way, it's even in the subtext of how we speak to one another. I know. I know. I already knew that. You told, you told me I already knew it. I, yeah, I knew it like five minutes ago. In fact, I knew that I knew you were going to say that. Why not just say you're right? You're right, man. You are so right. You are so right. Why? Because we hate to be wrong. And we value being right above relationship. And what Jesus is saying here is that if we want to see our relationships thrive, if we want to be near to the kingdom, if we want to introduce health and healing into dysfunction, let's love one another. Let's love our neighbor, whoever that may be in the moment, because it's a moving circle, a moving center. Whoever your neighbor is in the moment, love that person as Jesus loves us. Because that's the Lord. He doesn't only love us when we deserve to be loved. He loves us when we don't. He doesn't only love us when we do good things. When we're faithful. He loves us when we do the opposite. And we're more unfaithful. He says, love one another as I have loved you. That's all I got for you. Why don't you join me in standing?